Hey, welcome to the Hopecast, where this week we are continuing our summer sermon series, 10 Questions That Jesus Asked by Looking at the Parable of the Good Samaritan, where uh, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus one time and was trying to find out the bare minimum of who he should love by asking the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus kind of tested him back by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan and he asked him the question which is what we were focusing on who was the one that was the neighbor to the man in need and uh, so we learn how ultimately our love for God is shown in how we love our neighbor and uh, it was a good look into a great parable of Jesus hope you enjoy peace Good to see everybody this morning. So uh, we are uh, continuing on in our uh, sermon series, 10 Questions That Jesus Asked. We've talked about a lot of different things. Last week, uh, our guest preacher, Sue Dinsmore, um, preached on uh, uh, who, uh, about the, the parable of the lost sheep. I almost forgot for a second. I did forget for a second. But about the parable of the lost sheep, and she reminded us that uh the lost uh, that that Jesus goes out and searches for the lost sheep, and it's not necessarily who we might think it is. It's all those who are marginalized, who are affected by society, who are um, the poor, who are the fugitive, the orphans, the widows. And Jesus cares about all those. He cares about everybody, even those who have a great life, who have benefited from. Uh, maybe the way our society is set up and who have benefited from uh, things that are out of their control. But he also loves and cares just as much about those who have been greatly affected by tragedy, and we should also be concerned about their plight. Well, in our question today that Jesus asks, we are looking at the question that Jesus asked to uh, a lawyer, uh, uh, an expert in the law, when the lawyer asked, about uh, getting into heaven, right? Basically attaining eternal life. And Jesus asked him this question, who was the neighbor to this man that had been hurt? And you'll see where, if you're, if you're not familiar with the story that we're, that we're going to be talking about, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you'll get there in a minute. But this, uh, as I was prepping for the sermon this week, uh, it reminds me a lot, reminded me a lot of a show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Raise your hands if you've seen that before. Uh, I've seen it a lot. You younger kids, you've never seen it, have you? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We're going to have to look it up on YouTube. I am sorry I have failed as a parent because we need to watch some Mr. Rogers, okay? And the reason it reminded me of this is, does anybody remember the name of the song or the tagline of the song that he sang like toward the beginning of every episode? Won't you be my neighbor? Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? And then he would say, hello, neighbor. Right? He was very concerned uh, about wanting us to be neighborly toward one another. And I, I think that had a lot to do with the fact that he was actually an ordained minister himself. He knew greatly the words of Christ. And he probably had this parable in mind when he wanted all the kids who watched him to know that he considered them a neighbor, and they could consider him a neighbor, right? He cared about us. He he, he gave us uh, videos about how things were made. I remember like being 
like just enthralled by this video that he showed one time about how crayons are made. Anybody ever seen that video? They got this liquid wax and they just pour it in these molds. And then when it cools, these crayons just pop out. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, he gave, he taught us lessons about how to treat others well. He, uh, he actually broke some, uh, stereotypical, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? He, he, he did some things that hadn't been done before on TV. Uh, like there was one episode where he ended up fellowshipping and hanging out with, um, one of his neighbors in his neighborhood who was a, a black police officer. Yes, yeah, black police officer. Thank you. I should have like studied that more. I just thought about it. Uh, but he was the black police officer. He hung out with him. And that was not done a whole lot during that time. Okay. Um, he, he was always inviting us into his world. It was a safe place where we could use our imagination, where we learned about uh, how to be kind and how to treat others well. And I think he did a really great job of being Jesus in a way without even beating someone over the head with the Bible, which I think is a great way. Jesus asked the question, who was a neighbor in this parable he told? Now, typically we think of neighbors as those who live next door, right? Even if you live out in the country, your next, your neighbor may be a mile away or half a mile away or, or whatever, but you still have neighbors. You still think that guy down the road, that family down the road, across the road or whatever. If you're in a, like a, a neighborhood or, or a big city, you, you have lots of neighbors potentially. Then typically we think about those that live next door, live close to us in our proximity as our neighbors. And that's true, but Jesus reminds us today that it's more than that. The, the, the idea of someone who is our neighbor or us being a neighbor to someone isn't limited by our geography or our physical address. It isn't limited by our proximity to that person. And it's not limited by relationship or religion. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37 to learn who our neighbor is and why that is important. Let's read. Starting in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Father, thank you for um, your word, for this parable that Jesus told. Help us to make sense of it. 
to so that we can take it and live it out ourselves in our own lives and the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the context here, earlier in this chapter, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, not his like just 12 disciples, but 72 additional kind of followers to proclaim the kingdom of God. He told them, go out into the villages, into the cities, tell them the kingdom of God is near. If they accept you, stay there, teaching them, preaching them, preaching to them about the things that I have told you. But if they don't accept you, wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next town. And they returned to him after a few days with reports that people were being healed and that evil spirits were being driven out. And they were like so pumped up about it, right? It reminds me kind of of any time like you go off to a conference or a revival summer camp, you come back just like amped up, right? God did all these amazing things. We heard all these amazing uh, worship songs. We heard these amazing pastors and preachers. And, and, and I just want to go and like tell everybody about Jesus. And that lasts for a week, maybe two weeks, three, if you're, you know, really into it. And then you just kind of ease back into normal life because, you know, not everybody else is as hyped up as, as you are, right? And Jesus reminds them, and, and it's a good reminder for those of us that have ever experienced that. The real treasure is not your spiritual high, but the real treasure is that you are included in the kingdom of God. And that's what he reminds them of. And in the final parts of Jesus' ministry before Passion Week, where he will be betrayed into the hands of the Roman government and the Jewish leaders, he, he, uh, he, he's sending out his disciples to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, and he's telling these parables to help his disciples understand more and more about what his ministry, what his kingdom actually is. And as he is talking to these people, as, as, as people are standing around listening, an expert in the law stands up, to test Jesus. People tested Jesus a lot because they wanted, they wanted someone to be the Messiah. They had been promised this Messiah that was going to come and make everything great, going to make everything work out how it was supposed to, how they wanted it to. They were ready for the Messiah, but they wanted to make sure that it was Him. And Jesus didn't always live up to their expectations. He rarely lives up to my expectations of him because sometimes I have a wrong idea about what I think he should do. So an expert in the law, the Mosaic law, the 613 commandments that they were required to keep, uh, which has like a lot of things that are very weird and odd in our Western culture. Don't eat shellfish, don't wear clothes that are mixed of two different types of materials. Um, don't, you know, uh, ladies, if you're, during that time of the month, you have to isolate yourself from everyone for like seven days. I'm thankful we don't have to do that because our house would shut down, right? If I was the only one in charge of it, it would be terrible times. Anyways, so an expert in this law, he knew everything about it. He stands up to test Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a question it seems to me that many people are asking today, many people are still asking, people were asking it 2,000 years ago, we're all still asking it, and Jesus said, well, what do you think? What's your interpretation of the law, since you are an expert? And the man said, love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you inherit eternal life. 
one of the problems that I see in our world today is certain certain wings of our religion, certain groups within Christianity want to add to that. Yes, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and believe this correctly about uh, free will and about predestination and have the correct view of the rapture and tribulation and the end times and revelation and read my preferred translation of the Bible from 1611 and also believe this and also believe this and 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 they keep moving further and further away from the core truth of the gospel to inherit eternal life love god with everything you have and you love your neighbor as yourself and many people might say oh well loving god means that you have to believe this and you have to believe that and you have to speak the truth in love and you have to tell someone who is living a homosexual lifestyle i love you but that's not in here not here anywhere at all. But Jesus says that's correct. If you love God with all you have and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. Jesus goes beyond the textbook answer, right? And what he does next. Somebody tell me real quick, quick math, quick math. Kids, this is a test before you go back to school. Two plus two, hurry, hurry. Four, four, four. All right, I got all good answers. Why is two plus two four? Yeah. Uh huh. And one. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Now keep going. I think you're on the right path. This is like some advanced level stuff. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Because you got two, and then you add two more. Right. Two ones plus two ones is four. Yeah. But why? Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. If you Google, why does two plus two equal four, you will get links with information about this thing called set theory. And long, complicated equations that prove 2 plus 2 does equal 4 and why is it, it is important and why math has objective truth that, that, that it sits upon, that underlies it. The fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is why we can calculate things like water flow and pressure, the volume of a yard of dirt, how much weight a dump truck can safely haul, how much money a person owes for something based on a percentage of their income. Knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4 underpins almost everything that we do in life. Our technology operates on this principle of objectively true math. People landed on the moon due to the fact that 2 plus 2 actually equals 4. But if we only ever agreed that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and we never did anything about it, if we never took that principle and continued to expand it out, we would still be living in the dark ages. And in the same way, if we only ever learn what the Bible says and never allow it to change us to be more like Jesus, it's just mythology and we're still in the dark. But putting the words of Jesus into practice is just as important, more important, 
than relying on the fact that two plus two equals four. And Jesus is, and Jesus challenges this expert in the law to put the words of scripture into action. He says, okay, cool. You know that loving God with all you have and loving your neighbor as yourself is the key to eternal life. Do that. Do it and you will live. Go and do likewise. Action verbs. Go, do. Not sit, wait. And that should have been enough. That should have been enough for the lawyer to say, cool, I will love God with everything I have and I will love my neighbor as myself. Because that's what the Messiah has told me to do. But he wanted to be justified. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It means to be thought correct in your actions and your attitudes. Well, what if I believe that two plus two equals six? Can I prove that? Can I be justified in that? Can I twist the truth somehow to make it seem like two plus two equals six? And I can just ride that on out and, and, and be okay with that? The lawyer wanted to be justified in not going and not doing. And so he asked Jesus another question. Okay, then. Who is my neighbor? Jesus, can you give me a specific list of the people that I am required to love to stay in God's favor or to stay in His love or to obtain His love? Where is the line? What is the bare minimum? I'll do that. I'm not really interested in doing a whole lot else. Some of you probably won't remember, but I know at least one of us in here, because we've watched this movie together, in 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 our our years together almost 20 years together can you believe she put up with me that long well actually over that together but 20 years married um we dated for like four or five years anyways chase that rabbit does anybody remember or have you ever watched the movie office space i know me and mary have watched it together go check it out it's hilarious it's full of old technology and jokes that you probably won't get but it's funny uh, well, in this movie, uh, Jennifer Aniston plays a character. I can't remember her name. She is a waitress in a restaurant called Chotchkeys. And in this restaurant, it's one of those like 90s restaurants where the waitstaff has suspenders and they wear these cute and quirky little buttons like sassy or attitude or whatever uh, on their suspenders. And they call it flair, right? The manager has a meeting with this character during lunch, during like her lunch shift, and she's pull, he pulls her aside and says, uh, you know, I've noticed that you're only wearing 15 pieces of flair. And that's, that's the minimum. And that's okay if you want to do the minimum. But some people do more than that. Like, I can't remember the other guy's name. He's, he's like, oh, like this guy over here, he's wearing 32 pieces of flair. And, and she basically says, if you want me to wear 32 pieces of flair, make the minimum 32. Right? Now, she was kind of, in, and, and a lot of this movie is kind of railing against arbitrary rules that don't really mean anything, that don't actually improve anything. It's all about a look. Um, and, and, and certainly not, not trying to equate that movie with Jesus' words, but it just reminded me of it, right? Because the manager is trying to make a point about people only doing the minimum, but the way he does it is frustrating. Because it doesn't really matter how many buttons she has on her suspenders. That doesn't make her a better waitress. 
And in a similar way, the lawyer here is focusing on the wrong thing. He's asking, what type of people should I love? Where is the line? How far do I have to go? Just as important as the question that he asks is the one that he is not asking, but is implying. Who can I not love? Who do I have permission to treat like garbage? And Jesus answers with the story of the Good Samaritan where an unlikely hero emerges to save the day and to save the life of a man who had been beaten, robbed, stripped of everything he had, and left for dead. A little bit of context in this. The reason why the Samaritan is an unlikely hero, and you probably know this, is the Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people of the time. It was really radical for Jesus. Really out there. Really woke, as some people might use it, for Jesus to use the Samaritan as the hero in His story. Because Jewish people viewed the Samaritans at the time as worse than non-believers. Right? If you just didn't believe in the same God that we believed in, that's bad. But these Samaritans believed in the same God, but they had differences of how, differences of opinion about how that God should be worshipped. And that's worse. That's way worse. Likewise, the Samaritans viewed themselves as the legitimate kingdom of God and the Jews as the illegitimate kingdom. Seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same. We have a lot of those same arguments now. We're the real Christians. No true Christian would ever love this group of people. No real Christian would ever do this or not do that or would ever read that translation of the Bible or whatever. No true Christian would allow a woman to preach. And so Jesus turns an outcast into a hero. And in our culture today, that has, that has affected our culture because we often have positive connotations about Samaritans. We name hospitals after them, charitable organizations. There's the Good Samaritan Law that says if you stop to help someone in good faith, but something bad happens, you can't be held accountable for it. Like if you stop or, or, or if, if you are walking down the street and someone falls over and you know how to do CPR and you start trying to do CPR, if that person doesn't make it, it's not your fault, right? Because you were trying to do something well. But to the original audience, the fact that this Samaritan was the hero of the story was very scandalous. And if you've heard a sermon about this before or a lesson, you may have heard that you and I are like the lawyer seeking to do the bare minimum, seeking to gain the grace of God. And that's not wrong. We do that, all of us, myself included. I instinctively look for the most efficient route to do what God has asked me to do and then only do the minimum that I think in order to keep it, in order to keep God's love. That doesn't excuse it, but it does happen. But if we're like this guy, then I think we have to think about it like he would have. Jesus is asking the lawyer and us to consider ourselves as the person who had been beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Helpless. Who would we expect to save us? Who would we expect to have mercy on us? I mean, obviously the religious leaders, right? If a pastor came by and I was suffering and I was drowning in debt and I was, I, I was kind of the victim of a capitalist society who, who 
who had, who had very little to do with the situation that I am in other than trying to do the best that I can and end up failing over and over again, surely the pastor, the preacher of the local church would have compassion on me, right? And he may not be able to like pay all my bills or anything like that, but he, he or she might try to help me, right? Because they spend more time studying and contemplating the words of God more than anything else. They know that they ought to do the right thing. I know there are some excellent, amazing pastors. I know some of them personally who would do everything in their power to help someone who was in great need. But I also know some that may not. And in this story, the the priest and the Levite who was a, a worker in the temple didn't do the right thing. There, there are pastors today who are similar and church leaders who are routinely found to be involved in scandals involving money, infidelity, sexual assault, and much, much more, many worse things. And many of them are high-profile leaders of congregations and denominations who have been allowed to continue this abuse for years. And I don't believe that they're the norm. For every one pastor involved in the scandal, I believe that there are dozens more who are the salt of the earth, who are good people, who love God and love their neighbor. But it goes to show that just because you know what the Bible says doesn't mean that you always put it into practice. And here's the takeaway for today. The greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. We show our love for God. We show our devotion to Him in the way that we love our neighbors as ourselves. That is the acting out of God's love is in how I love my neighbor. We may have been taught inadvertently that you love God, that that's like the first priority, and then number two, you love your neighbors. And because we like efficiency and systems, we've kind of put them in an ordered list. Right, it's how we live in the Western world. But these two things are intensely related. You can't separate them. They depend on one another. God loves us. God loves me. And you too. And we begin to receive and understand that love. And it helps us to love ourselves like He does, more like He does, because we see ourselves more and more as He sees us. And that's very important. It's kind of like the linchpin that holds these two statements together. Because in understanding how God loves us, I begin to see myself as, as worthy of His love. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done and because of who God already is. And if I begin to realize how much and how unconditionally God loves me, it helps me to love others in the same way that He already loves them. One of the big goals is to try to get my love for my neighbor to match God's love for them as much as I possibly can. Because it helps them to know that God loves them. Right? God loves me. He helps me to understand myself. helps me to love myself. And because I understand His love for me, I understand His love for my neighbor. And then I put my love, put the love that I found from Him into practice with my neighbor, and then it helps them begin to understand how much he loves them. 
the lawyer, the expert in the law, wanted to know who his neighbor was, who he was required to love, and who he could ignore. And Jesus puts him right in the middle of the parable. Not as the hero, but as the one who needs saving. And at the end of the parable, he has to regrettably admit that the one that he would not have saved is the one that showed him mercy. His enemy was actually the hero. The one that we all thought was the bad guy showed mercy. And Jesus again reminds him, go and do likewise. Go and show mercy to the one who would never expect to receive mercy from you. Go and show mercy to the one that we think, surely Jesus, you're not asking me to love and show mercy to that person. But no, Jesus is asking us, go and show them love. True love, actual love. Not truth in love that people are using as an excuse for bigotry. Love people as they are, where they are, with no expectation of reward or payment or payback. Love them because God already loves them. And that's all that matters. Do they have issues? Probably. Do I? 1,000%. I have more issues than Newsweek. That's old. I don't know what Newsweek is. It's a magazine that comes out about weekly, I think. Anyways, I've got a lot of issues. That's all I'm saying. And you know what? God loves me anyways. Why should I presume to do less? I want to close with this quote from, from my now. I'm, I'm officially saying this is my favorite author. Uh, the officially the most quoted uh, author that I, that I read to study. That I've, I've officially quoted her the most on Sundays. Her work has been so good to me. It's Debbie Thomas. I'm going to close with this and then we're going to close in prayer. And during our, during our final song, I'm going to go ahead and say, if you would like prayer, maybe you've not felt love from your neighbors and you're having a tough time with that. Maybe there are people that you used to be in neighborly friendship with who are giving you the silent treatment lately because of whatever. Maybe you have people who are actively hurting you, taking advantage of you, and you just would like some prayer for that. I would love to pray for you about that with uh, pray with you about that at the end after our or during our song um, or whatever else you might have need for uh, I'm going to read this quote and then we're going to close in our song and, and I just want to let you know I'll be available for prayer this is what Debbie Thomas says in her book that's called uh, Into the Mess and Other Jesus Stories who is my neighbor the lawyer asks your neighbor is the one who scandalizes you with compassion Jesus answers your neighbor is the one who upends all of your entrenched categories and shocks you with a fresh face of God. Your neighbor is the one who mercifully steps over the ancient bloodied line that separates us from them and teaches you the real meaning of good. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do this. Do this and you will live. Father, thank you for of your mercy, the compassion that you have on us every day. Help us to internalize it, to realize how much you love us, to realize how good your love is for us. 
so that we can then go out and love our neighbor in the same way, to have compassion on them, even those that we may have been taught inadvertently or maybe purposefully that, are, that they are not part of our tribe and we should have nothing to do with them. Help us to seek out those who are marginalized, the fugitive, those who uh, are, are having laws made uh, that, that directly affect them in a negative way. Help us to have compassion on those who are the least like us. That's what Jesus would want us to do. We believe. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.